Well, good morning, Faith Church West. It's good to see you this morning. I'm Pastor Brent Oakwin. Normally, I'm over at Faith East, and it's always a joy and privilege to be with you here on the West Side. I appreciate our worship team so much. Um, just reflecting on all of the meaningful words, that has been such a meaningful time of worship. Um, I know I was spiritually fed just by listening and engaging with the worship music this morning. And um, that can be spiritual food for the soul if we engage our minds and our hearts during that worship time. So I appreciate their diligent and thoughtful work in worship. So thank you, worship team. Tell me this, Olympic trivia time. Who is the most decorated Olympian ever? Who is that? Michael Phelps. How many medals has he won? Anybody know? A lot. 28. So 28. To accomplish that achievement... The self-mastery over his body that he exhibited was extreme. In his own words, he would say that his only activities during his training were eating appropriately, sleeping, and swimming. For any high-performance athlete, they are examples of self-mastery of the body. Now, when you think of self-control, what is the first thing you think of? I know what you're thinking. Brent is about to ruin my summer of gluttonous uh, cookouts and entertainment. <laughs> That's what you're thinking. Um, and, or you're thinking drudgery, lack of freedom, strict set of guidelines, external controls that nobody wants. But what I'm about to say to you is, may surprise you. When we think about self-control or self-mastery, we often think that it is a form of rigorous behavior modification that is void of desire. Self-control, however, does not come from external rules and regulations. All forms of self-mastery are, in fact, driven by your desires. When you think about it, it's fairly intuitive. Why is it that Michael Phelps or any high-performance athlete disciplines himself to arise early, eat a balanced meal, to do rigorous training, to go to bed early and then wake up the next day and do it all over again? Why does he... Well, why did he do that? I mean, the answer is that the athlete has an overarching desire that supersedes his desire for laziness, for Pop-Tarts, or for couch surfing. Something is driving that. The self-control that he and others exhibit is ordered by a greater desire. The Apostle Paul illustrated this when he said this, Everyone who competes in the games, and this is talking about Olympic games back then, exercises self-control. Why? Because some kind of rigorous thing? In all things, they do it to receive something. They desire something, a perishable wreath. So what is it that results in the athlete's self-control? The desire for that perishable wreath. And we all know what that means in competition. It's for you to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time, right? The goat, and that's what they call Michael Phelps, the greatest of all times. By the way, we probably should modify that acronym to GHOST, the greatest of a short time until somebody else comes and beats your record. The GOAT. The praise of man will only ultimately be short-lived, though until somebody else arises to beat the record. And that is the problem. Listen to Michael Phelps' words here. Um, if your whole life was about building up to one race, one performance, or one event, how does that sustain everything that comes afterwards? Do you hear his words? After he has been the goat, what is left for his, his motivation? Eventually, for me at least, there was one question, that was one question that hit me like a ton of bricks. 
who was I outside of the swimming pool? After the race or when somebody breaks your record, what's the point of self-control? Then, apparently, the overarching desire for the perishable wreath, the praise of man, was, could not sustain his life afterwards. So a more significant question is this. What is the greatest delight or desire that orders and fuels God's people to enjoy sexual desire rightly ordered without sexual immorality, to relish the variety of tasty food or drink without gluttony or drunkenness, to appreciate the beauty of the human form without envy and jealousy, to pursue justice and forgiveness without seeking revenge, to use possessions without greed or hoarding or stinginess, to work hard without becoming a slave to your work, to think on true thoughts without fear or worry or despair. That's the question. What is the ultimate delight that orders all of this and results in self-control? And yeah, this morning we're speaking on self-control. I know all of you woke up and said, yay, we're speaking on self-control this morning. But I'm not going to speak to you about self-control as a form of stoic and legalistic behavior modification. And the opposite of that is what we're seeing lived out in our culture today, which could rightly be described in terms of a total abandonment of any self-control. And folks, if you just look at our culture right now, if you have eyes to see our society's supposed freedom to follow their desires, they're doing whatever they want, freedom to follow with a total lack of any self-control, it hasn't resulted in freedom. What has happened is a totalitarian enslavement in which everybody must bow the knee to their desires. This morning we are speaking about a greater desire that orders all others and thus results in a truly freeing self-control. A greater desire of an imperishable wreath, a delight so delightful that it fuels and fills the human heart resulting in appropriate mastery of all of our other desires. Augustine, the great church father, said it this way, it is only when the creator is rightly loved and there is your delight and your desires right there, my passions. When the creator is rightly loved, that is when he's loved for what he is and when no other creature is loved in his place of him, our other desires If we want virtue by which to live, self-control, so it seems to me that the best brief description of what virtue is is to say it's the ordering of our loves. In other words, self-control is not some stoic practice, but it is the right ordering of our loves, our desires. And again, Paul, the apostle, illustrated this. I didn't finish this quote earlier, but in 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an perishable wreath, the greater desire, the one that fuels and motivates God's people, but we, something that is eternal, imperishable. There is a greater delight and desire that orders Paul in his discipline, And with that in mind, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to turn there first, and then we're going to go to another passage. But 2 Peter chapter 1, that's on page 183 in the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. 
We're continuing our annual series on Hope for Everyday Life with our summer series here on Hope for Fruitful Service. And this Sunday we are developing self-control that leads to fruitful service. And here's what the Word of God says in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. To, do, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. That's such a sweet promise. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these, by his promises, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. There's something supernatural about what Christ is wanting to do in us, produce in us Christ's likeness, and you're going to see what that is in all of these lists of characteristics in just a moment. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. This is the supernatural divine nature. So add to your faith moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, there's what we're talking about this morning. Verse 8. Now there's a whole other list that we'll continue to develop, but for this morning we're going to stop at self-control. But look at verse 8. If these qualities, this divine nature, um, are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Point of the series. Okay? Hope for fruitful service. They render you new, um, neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you lack these qualities, okay, think with me. If you're struggling in these qualities, lacking them, resisting them, here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. You're blind or short-sighted having forgotten your purification from the sins. You have forgotten the gospel. Okay. In this series, we're taking one of these supply-to-your-faith characteristics and illustrating it today from an Old Testament example. Now, if you will, please, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, and that's in the front section of your Bible, page 30. Okay. In the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, speaks of how God created the world, and then through mankind's sin, God's beautiful creation was broken. God is unrelenting, however, in accomplishing his plan. He selects a messed up family. And how many of us are messed up families? Don't raise your hand, but we all are. He selects a messed up family to work through, to bring about his world redemption. And that family was childless Abraham and Sarah, to whom God miraculously brought the child of promise, Isaac. Then childless Isaac and Rebekah prayed to the Lord for a child, and the Lord gave them twins, Jacob and Esau. God renamed Jacob to be Israel, and Israel bore 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel through whom God works his redemptive plan. Now, Bible trivia question. Who was Jacob's favorite spoiled son? Favorite son. Who was Jacob's favorite son? Do you remember? Say it, say it out loud. Joseph. Okay. The other non-favored sons of Jacob were jealous of their brother Joseph. And they left him for dead in a pit until a caravan came by one day and took Joseph into slavery into Egypt. 
Joseph was separated from his family and lived as a slave in a foreign land. So we pick up the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. He will be, he will be a picture of self-control in the midst of great trial. Now, I love the Old Testament, and in the, uh, in the seminary that we have here, I, I teach um, how to begin to interpret some of these narratives. And in this particular narrative, the author has embedded many repetitious ideals and phrases. They're not always clear in the English, but I'm going to point them out to you so you'll see how this narrative is constructive. And I'm going to probably have you repeat a few things. Just humor me, if nothing else. Even if you get tired of it, it'll at least keep you awake for a moment, okay? So humor me by repeating after me when I say these things. So I'm going to point those out as we go. Verse 1, now Joseph has been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. Pharaoh's captain of the bodyguard. Do you think that's random? Say no. Say no. Okay. okay. And he bought him from the, from the Ishmaelites. Now, here is where in the Hebrew, you can't see this in the English, but literally it says, bought him from the hand. Raise your hand for just a second. Everyone raise your hand for just a second. Hands. Say hand. You're going to see how much this is repeated in just a second. Okay? He bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now the Lord was, what are the next two words? The Lord was what? With Joseph. So he became a successful man. Notice the reason for his success. God was with him. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was, what are the next two words? With him. And how the Lord caused all, say all, say all, all that he did to prosper. Look at those last three words there. In his, in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and, and he became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over all his house and all that he owned, and he put in his charge. Those words, in his charge, say that in English, but in Hebrew, it's in his hand. And it came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all, say all, all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And thus the Lord's blessing was upon, say all, all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything, the word Hebrew word there is all, he owned in Joseph's charge. And with them, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now we get an interesting observation from the author. Now Joseph was a handsome. He was handsome in form and appearance. Oh my goodness, he was a hottie. He was a stud muffin. He was a looker. That's what the Hebrew author is saying here. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph because he was a stud muffin. Okay? And he said, lie, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. Hebrew phrase, in my hand. There is no one greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? 
And she spoke to Joseph day after day, but he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Notice the self-control. Now, it happened one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment. Where did he leave his garment? Where, where does the text say? In her hand. And fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left her garment in her hands and fled outside. Here's a question. Who ultimately put the garment in her hand? Don't answer right now. She called to the men of the household and constructs a lie about Joseph. And then she tells the lie. And then she ultimately tells it to her husband as well. Verse 19, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke of him, saying, This is what your slave Joseph did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, Pharaoh's prisoners. And he was there in jail. This is not random either. The key's right next to the king's prisoners. And then the redemptive story repeats itself like deja vu all over again. It ends as it began, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended. Here's a new concept, kindness. That's the Hebrew word, Hebrew concept of God's covenant, faithful love, chesed, to him and gave him favor in his sight. We've heard this before of the chief jailer. And the, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever, Hebrew word, all that was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, charges in his hand, because the Lord was oh, with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Here's what we're talking about this morning. Three keys to develop the greatest delight in God that results in ordered desires or self-control. And the first one is this. Understand the picture of self-control. We have in Joseph a picture. Okay? A picture of self-control, foregoing some desires for the sake of a greater desire. That's what we have here. Now, the Old Testament narratives are so rich, and I'm going to give you a pointer. I've already given you a pointer about how to read them, repetition. The authors many times do repetitious kind of things, but I'm going to give you another tip on how to read some of these Old Testament narratives. Every one of them will teach us something about one of three things, or sometimes all three things at the same time, God, man, and God's plan. Old Testament narratives, God, man, and God's plan. When you find something about the way God is functioning, and we will hear, or the way that he's responding, then you will learn of his character, and we get to know God better. When we see the behavior and responses of men, you learn about righteous behavior or unrighteous behavior. And most of the time, when preachers come to the Old Testament text, that's probably what they focus on. Here's our moral responsibility. Okay? And the Bible does teach this. But there's more in the text. God, man, and God's plan. When you learn something about God's redemptive plan in these narratives, you learn how God loves his people, chesed, covenant love, and how he will redeem them. 
And if you pull on that thread of God's redemptive plan, if you pull on it, it will take you all the way to Christ. And you can see it. And we're going to see it at the end here as well. So this morning, each sermon point will be focused on one of these elements in this order. Man, God, and his redemptive plan. So, in the Genesis 39 Joseph story, Joseph is thrust front and center right here. And all the interpreters park on Joseph's character during this trial. And I believe self-control is an apt enough description of what we see here with Joseph. We see a portrait or a picture of self-control. And I am going to submit to you that we see Joseph with rightly ordered desires. And we see three ways, at least three ways, he has rightly ordered desires. Number one is this. He's foregoing the desires to use his position to benefit self, but instead using it to benefit others. The story repeats itself, beginning and end, in the way that Joseph has functioned. In the beginning, he is a slave, and yet he does not resign himself to mediocre, half-hearted work. In the end, he's a prisoner, and yet he does not resign himself to mediocre, half-hearted work. And listen to me here, please, okay? Right here. Character is not situation-specific, okay? Character is not situation-specific. The repetition of the process twice shows us that there was something repeatable about Joseph's character. His first manner of responding was not a fluke or an aberration. And in this case, whatever he touched benefited his boss. Here's what that means in terms of self-control. In very trying times, he forwent the desire to seek escape, ease, comfort, in order to achieve a greater desire of loving his neighbor, in this case, his boss. Sounds like a lot like properly ordered desires, a greater desire driving this, loving others. The second way that we see Joseph relinquish um, certain desires because of a greater desire is this, and this one is the most clear, okay? Forgoing the desire for illicit pleasure, but instead (sighs) desiring the beauty of God's righteousness. As I mentioned, character is not situation-specific. And that applies not just to Joseph, but Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife playing the field was probably not just limited as a one-time event to Joseph. Like, how many well-built, handsome slaves came across her path? Probably dozens and dozens. Handsome men are a dime a dozen. Just look at your pastors around here, right? (laughs) No, here's what you're thinking. I pay way more than a dime for you guys, and um, they're not worth that. Very, they're not worth that in terms of what they bring to me as far as eye candy. So, back to Joseph for a moment. Are we to assume that Joseph was the first and only for Potiphar's wife? No. Joseph had every reason to give into give into temptation. He could have thought this: I'm already a slave. Why not grab a little pleasure with my master's wife? He's placed everything in my hand. Surely he's okay with me playing around with a known adulterous wife. Surely he's okay with that. He doesn't correct her. I've earned a bit of pleasure. I deserve a bit of this kind of pleasure. What was Joseph thinking? And friends, we don't have to wonder because he says it. 
We don't have to wonder. Here is what he was thinking. Because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He says this, There is no one greater in this house than I am, and my master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. That's a loaded statement right there. You are his wife, and the wife is not mine. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? What is at the heart of Joseph's ordered desires? It's certainly not sexual pleasure. But how could Joseph resist? He's a young, virile man. I mean, he's a hottie. He's a stud. Does anybody expect him to resist? It's not natural for him to resist. Self-control in this case is not natural. It is supernatural. Joseph's delight was not first in loving sexual pleasure. But you, ha- you see it. His first in loving God and the beauty of God's ways. Joseph's delight is in the covenant of marriage. You are his wife. I am not your wife. And how God has arranged marriage. That statement right there is a classic example of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And this fear of the Lord manifested in Joseph's life has produced in him wise and righteous, self-controlled, ordered behavior. And that's serving him well right now and will serve him well on into the rest of his life. Joseph loves God most and thus his passions are rightly ordered. There is your self-control. Do you see it? Rightly ordered passions. Do Do you see it? In time, Joseph will have his own wife, and he will enjoy godly sexual pleasure. He will have two children. The third way that we see Joseph relinquish certain desires for a greater desire is this. In this situation, how many of us would have already despaired? Forgoing the desire to despair and instead desire to hope. Joseph could have responded with, no good deed goes unpunished giving in to despair. And the text is silent regarding Joseph's thoughts, but not his actions. We find Joseph continuing to work at, for the benefit of others in prison. And at the very end of the Joseph narrative, not that we read it today, but we will see that Joseph had something in him, which may be embryonic at this point, but in the end it developed into a full-blown hope when he told his brothers this, God worked all of this out for good. You guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So he did not give in to despair, but he had hope. Let's pause for just a moment. There's the picture of self-control in front of us. Not some kind of external straitjacket that is legalistically placed upon you, but the ordering of our desires by a greater desire. I said, now look at the areas of your life. Look at the areas of my life. Where are you not consistently winning in self-control? Entertainment. I must have amusement. Sexual pleasure. I must have that exhilaration. Food. I must have my taste buds delighted and my stomach filled possessions. I must, have, I must have the security and choices that, that possessions bring me. Relationships. I must have a relationship or I will despair. Or 
I must maintain my bitterness because of hurt from relationships. Success at work, I must have the praise of man. I must be the goat, the greatest of all time. You know, we think these things, if I just chase after them, I am free. I am free. I don't have to exercise self-control. I'm free. But you understand that you are not free, but you're actually mastered by them. They are your master. And your desires and your loves are improperly ordered. Now let's look at the second key that develops the greatest delight in God here, and that's this. The first one was about man. This one is going to be about God. And as you see these characteristics of our great God, how can he not be more beautiful than whatever we desire that's not him? Believe the power of God's sovereign exercise of love for his people. I know that point is a mouthful, but I think every word is important. We see God's powerful exercise of sovereignty in this chapter, um, and it's out of love for his people. Powerfully exercising sovereignty, he's in control of everything behind the scenes. Firstly is this, we see God's power in this narrative to orchestrate the seemingly random details. Okay? With Joseph being sold to Potiphar's, Potiphar's Pharaoh's captain, was Joseph being sold to Potiphar, was that random? Say no. No, it wasn't. Was Joseph being delivered into the prison of Pharaoh's prisoners? Was that random? Say no. Where did Potiphar's wife catch Joseph's clothes in her hand and through the repetition you see this is not random who ultimately put it in her hand it was God God is random not God is orchestrating the seemingly random details and that includes your life and mine let me ask you a question is me standing here before you as a pastor is me standing here before you as one of your pastors random? Say no. Let me tell you a little story. There was a young man who loved racing around in cars. It was not me. Just before his high school graduation, he had a severe car accident, and the severe injuries that he sustained caused him to lose interest in car racing and pick up other interests like movie making, the movie that he made and released in 1977, some of you may know where I'm going with this, became a smash hit. As a nine-year-old boy, this is my story now, I saw Star Wars for the very first time, and from that time on, I wanted to be an astronaut. Ultimately, where do you go to college if you want to be an astronaut? You go to Purdue. And here at Purdue, I found Faith Church and learned about the sufficient scriptures. And I started wanting to build people and not rockets. So why do I stand before you today as a pastor? Because God let George Lucas have an accident 60 years ago. <laughs> None of this is random. None of this is random. God is sovereignly working over everything. God's powerful hands are orchestrating everything to cause people to prosper when it's his will. Who put everything in Joseph's hands? God did. But shall we accept blessing and not challenges? No. 
Because God exercises his sovereignty to cause to suffer when strategic. She caught his clothes in her hands. Who put those hands there? Who put those clothes there? It was God. That wasn't an accident. The same powerful, sovereign God in this incident that would eventually lead to Joseph suffering more in prison, but it was strategic. And indeed, this is a rich example of all that we studied in 1 Peter this earlier this year, suffering under unjust authority, suffering for righteousness. Joseph was righteous here, and he suffered for it. He was falsely accused, but it was still all in God's hands. And if you remember Peter, Peter said in 1 Peter, if you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. But Joseph's in prison. What do you mean blessed? (laughs) This doesn't feel blessed. But God's powerful exercise of control is orchestrating all this. Yes, I know, but it doesn't feel good. And a powerful God that can control circumstances like this to bring successes and suffering, that's terrifying. Unless, unless... He also exercises his sovereignty personally. He has the power to be with you. How many times? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And what is more, God exercises his power out of his love for you to keep his covenant of grace with his people. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness Friends, Michael Phelps went through all of his self-control for a greater desire to be the goats, okay? The perishable wreath. And although we know that's not eternal, and Michael Phelps said so, if your whole life was about building up to one race, one performance, or one event, what sustains everything afterwards? And the answer is anything on this earth, it simply doesn't. However, this powerful God who exercises his control out of love for you, there is your greater delight. Hear me. Hear me on this. Your possessions, your earthly pleasures, the praise of man, your food does not have this kind of a personal loving power exercised for your benefit Perishable metals do not make a covenant of grace with you. So if you are disciplining your body for the praise of man, that praise only lasts but a few minutes until your body deteriorates. If you are exercising self-control in an area to become wealthy, what good are earthly riches when you're in the hole? And if you don't have self-control in certain areas, is God your greatest delight? few weeks ago, many of you here, Faith Church West, you demonstrated a a remarkable ordering of desires in VBS, and I want to thank you all for that. Thank you for all who served a few weeks ago for going entertainment, for going earning more money. You could have been trading, setting up your trades for the next day on online stock market trading, but instead you were here, right? You could have been grabbing an extra shut-eye, going to bed early, but you were here. 
in order to serve at VBS because of your greater delight to serve your God who saved you. And you wanted to be that kind of light to others to show them that. Thank you, Faith Church West, for doing so well in this area. The third key that develops the greatest delight in God is this, grasp the pleasure of God's redemptive plan. And here is our thread that when we pull it, it's going to take us right to Christ. Okay? The text teaches us something about God's redemptive plan, and if I pull it, if I pull it all out, it's going to take us somewhere. Grasp the pleasure of God's redemptive plan to use an innocent, suffering servant. And I've stated this in a strategic way. Joseph was an innocent, suffering servant, and God would, God would use him to save many. Does that sound familiar? An innocent, suffering servant to save many. Friends, Joseph's innocent suffering had a purpose. His mastery of his self for his greater desire, it did land him accused of adultery in prison. But God orchestrated it all so that Joseph would get to know one of Pharaoh's prisoners who would later remember Joseph and bring him before Pharaoh himself. God wanted Joseph to be ultimately right next to and in physical proximity to the king of Egypt so that Joseph's family one day would come down to Egypt and be saved, saving that family through which God was working his redemptive plan. So the innocent sufferer, Joseph, who was left for dead in a pit at one point, and he went down to the prison pit at another point, oh, he rose again. He rose again. Listen to this. When Pharaoh sees Joseph's wisdom, this is what Pharaoh does to Joseph. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all of my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you all over the land of Egypt. It almost sounds a little bit like this. God the Father talking to God the Son. Look, I have set the entire earth. You are king. All right, let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around the neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot and then proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. Sounds a bit like... Every knee shall bow. Okay. Then he sat him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise a hand or foot against you in all the land of Egypt. At the end of Joseph's innocent suffering story, Joseph says to his brothers this, As for you, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the saving of many. Here's the point. Joseph exercised self-control because of a greater delight or desire. And God used that innocent sufferer and exalted him to save the family of which later would result in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate Joseph, Jesus himself exercised self-control in all things he forwent the pleasures of heaven. 
for a greater desire, the love of his Father and the love of, oh, Faith Church family, the love of you. Okay? And by his innocent suffering, foregoing using his position to benefit himself, but to benefit you. Forgoing illicit pleasures. You remember when Satan tried to tempt him in the wilderness. You remember that. Forgoing illicit pleasures, but delighting in righteousness. Forgoing despair, but delighting in God's plan. Not my will, but yours be done, and I will go to the cross. And because of his innocent suffering, many are healed. And you who know the name of Christ this morning are healed as well. Believer, as Peter said, going back to Peter for just a moment, Second Peter, if self-control in you is not being added to your faith, supply to your faith self-control, here's the, here's the reason it's not. You have forgotten your greater desire, your greater delight. You have forgotten your former purification. That's what Peter says. That means you've forgotten the gospel. Why are, you, why are we not delighting in that? And your love in that area is disordered. If you struggle in that or in whatever ways, please, we would love to talk to you. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to your deacon. Your pastor is here. We would just love to help you with that. If you're here listening to me and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, you may say, Brent, I got this. I got a modicum of self-control. You don't know how well I exercise. You don't know how well I eat. Okay, great, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. What is going to sustain you when your body decays? What is going to sustain you when somebody's better than you are? What is going to sustain you in eternity? Another perishable wreath? It's perishable. If on the other hand, you're a non-believer here and you say, ah, Brent, I have no self-control. I am driven by every passing desire. You understand why? There's a greater delight that you have not found yet in Jesus Christ. Greater than your delight of food, entertainment, relationships. None of those things has, have given his life for you like Jesus Will you come to know him today and place your faith in him so that, and that will have the freeing result of self-mastery that orders all of your loves appropriately and you will indeed be free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Genesis 39 and thank you for, uh, for 2 Peter as well. Giving us all that we need for life and godliness and the instructions and, and allowing us to see how your ways are ordered in this world. Allow us to see some of the heart's issues that we have and the solutions that we have. Thank you, Father, for giving us all of these precious and magnificent promises that we might know you more, delight in you and your son more, and have well-ordered loves that you are pleased with. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.